Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Failed Housewives of Mormonism. My name is Grace Paul. That is actually a pseudonym. And this is essentially a podcast where I attempt to use the Real Housewives of whatever city as both a therapeutic guide and a sacred text. I chose to start this podcast for two reasons. One, Oh, I've been watching The Real Housewives since like season one of Orange County, and I have loved them since like 2006. Uh, I usually tell people that Ramona has been in, Ramona Singer has been in my life longer than my ex-husband was. So I genuinely love these women too. I, I remember the last episode of The Hills on MTV in which like Lauren Conrad appeared and I'm watching her in the back of this limo and she's, you know, pensively looking out the window. And I just remember thinking, it's been such a privilege watching this person over the past five years really grow up on television. And so I really feel that watching these women is a privilege. Uh, to me, The Real Housewives or the people on Vanderpump Rules or Summer House, it's not cringe to me. I don't really watch it for the spectacle. I find it fascinating in this weird, respectful, introspective way. Basically, I, I love all of these women. And if I can't, I really try and use them as triggers or teachers to do my inner work and, and question myself. Like, I want to figure out how to have compassion for Jax Taylor. And I want to figure out what that compassion looks like. I, I look at someone like Kristen Dowdy on Vanderpump Rules, and I think, like, how do I, how would I hold someone like her accountable while also having like sitting with and witnessing her like wounded inner child at like the deepest possible level that I could. So I really feel that so much introspective work could be done by using these shows as a catalyst for our own stuff. So that's really what I want this podcast to be. Plus, I'm not really funny and I don't really make memes and I don't want to have to like learn how to make memes. I, I, I just feel like the one thing I can do is question myself well. Uh, and I, I'm just not funny. So I figure why not take the gift of like ridiculous amounts of introspection and thought and actually put it onto a podcast. Uh, so that's generally the feel of each podcast. Uh, I'll go over the format as well. So each week I'll essentially be um, examining a new episode of The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City through a different theme. So one week it could be hope, Another week, it could be judgment. Another week, drinking. I don't really know. Those themes will essentially be all based in like what comes up for me as I'm watching the episode. This week's theme is Mormon stories. And the reason for that is because I grew up Mormon. I failed at it, which is why the podcast is named what it is named. I've since left the church, but I still have a lot of religious trauma that I'm attempting to sort through. And I, and I really feel that Mormonism colors everything that I do. I'm 40 years old. I was in the church for 38 years. I attempted to stay in. I never really thought I would leave. Even for the last six years uh, that I attended church, I attended as a non-believer. So I really thought that, oh, it doesn't matter what I believe. I'll just continue being part of this community because it works for me. And then suddenly it didn't work anymore. So this is really why Real Housewives of Salt Lake City was chosen as the vehicle to start this podcast. I have experience with Mormonism. I'm very much a Heather. So essentially, once the season is done, the season of Salt Lake City, it's possible that I'll move to like vintage episodes of Potomac or New York City. I might go into some old Vanderpump rules. But for the next few months, it will be Salt Lake. Okay, so like I said, each podcast will look at a Roslick. Is that how we're pronouncing this? Roslick episode? I know that Real Housewives of New York is Roni, but I'm assuming it's Roslick. So we'll examine a Roslick episode through the lens of a certain theme. Uh, think like Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, except more haphazard and less well-produced. I've also been super inspired by how vulnerable and real Rose Cernow and Jamie Lee are on the Couldn't Help But Wonder Sex in the City podcast. Um, and eventually I want to bring on Mormon and ex-Mormon guests who are listening, people who are watching the show to kind of talk about episodes, talk about their stories. So DM me on Instagram if you're interested in chatting. I'm at Failed Housewives of Mormonism on Instagram. Each episode is going to have four segments, uh, but I'm sure it will evolve over time. This is kind of what I have planned for the first few episodes. So 
The first segment will touch on where me or my guests are that week. So is there a certain housewife that we're identifying with? Um, this is really inspired by the Couldn't Help But Wonder podcast. Um, also inspired by that podcast is like a question of the week. So I'm going to take a question asked by one of the housewives during the episode and answer it. It could be a strange, weird question. It could be something profound. Uh, we'll just see where that goes. The elements that I'm kind of taking from Harry Potter and the sacred text uh, are the idea of having a theme and examining the episode through that theme. Uh, and the other thing I'm kind of taking is the whole ending the, the podcast with some sort of blessing. I, I don't plan to end on a blessing for this podcast, uh, but I want to take some of the feelings that were discussed during the episode and actually pull a tarot card for it. I don't really know tarot. I want to learn. So this will kind of be good practice for me. Uh, so at the end of the episode, I'll pull a card for something or someone within that episode. I'll read a little bit out of the tarot book and apply it to that week's topics. Okay, so that's enough housekeeping. Let's move into the episode. Um, I'm hoping that you'll get to know me throughout this episode, which is kind of why the theme is Mormon stories. I thought it would be important to kind of have all my listeners, all five of them, <laughs> or whoever is listening, uh, kind of know what I've been through, uh, know how my story kind of connects to, to the episode in some way. So you're not just listening to a stranger about what they're thinking. All right, let's. Okay, the first part of each podcast is where we talk about who were we this week or who are we today. Honestly, I'm feeling a bit, little bit like Jen Shaw, which isn't my normal MO. I'm not over the top and flamboyant and I'm dressed in jeans and a tank top from Target. But uh, two weeks ago, I made the mistake of interacting on a Latter-day Saint or a Mormon Facebook page or group. And essentially, I asked this question. I got over like 200 responses in 10 hours. So I was feeling a little overwhelmed. One of the people on the thread asked me, well, what is the point of you posting this? Because it seems like what you're trying to do is convince people that you can be a good person and not be Mormon. Uh, and so I just kind of was a little bit prickly about that. And I ended up just engaging and over explaining myself, giving too much information, spending way too much time trying to convince this person to, I don't know, validate me or understand where I was coming from or, you know, throw me a bone or whatever. And it just caused some drama. I ended up triggering myself in the process. It ended with me blocking this woman and I don't like blocking people. I, I blocked the woman because I ended up telling her to F off. I was so triggered because she was saying something like religious trauma isn't real. She was trying, I, I felt like she was trying to get me to trust the Mormon leaders and pray to the God that Mormons worship about whether or not the Mormon church is like true. And that was just like, I, I have put so much work into kind of distancing myself from the God that Mormons worship. And, and I, I don't know, I just, it was mostly my fault because I shouldn't have engaged and I made something larger than it needed to be. And I ended up carrying this with me well beyond what it needed to be. I mean, for days and days and days, I, I spent looking back, trying to figure out what I did wrong, trying to like convince myself that I was right in my self-righteousness. And uh, I, I sent like a two hour long polo to a friend dissecting every Facebook comment, every single sentence, telling her the backstory about why I was posting what I was posting and how I was interpreting this other woman. Like I just spent too much time on this thing. So I was very Jin Shaw and very kind of over the top with regard to this situation. Jen Shaw, I mean, she's clearly watched Housewives before. She's playing a role. She's producing herself, overproducing herself. And like I said, I kind of feel like instead of being like a laid back, chill person, I basically lost my mind for a few days, overproduced things, overreacted. Uh, and it was essentially completely unnecessary in some respects, yet in some respects it was necessary because from this experience, Two weeks later, I realized what the issue might have actually been. And I, I realized that I was essentially acting out uh, out of loneliness. Like the pandemic, we're nine months into the pandemic. There's no real end in sight. Some things may never go back to quote unquote normal. Um, so yeah, I was acting out 
of loneliness. Like I live alone. I haven't been reaching out to friends for the last nine months. I've been in a hole. Um, days go by where I don't like weeks go by where I wasn't talking to anyone about anything beyond like going to work meetings. So it's not like I live with someone and I talk to them about my day or I have friends that like we communicate so regularly that we can check in about whether, you know, what you made for dinner that night or whatever. So I, I was going like weeks on end without human contact or interaction that was rooted in anything meaningful to me. And I was just lonely, but I, I didn't even know until I completely blew up at this person. Um, I needed some sort of human connection. And instead of like realizing that and feeling my feelings about it, I was essentially forcing the stranger to interact with me based on what I needed at that moment. Um, and I was becoming more and more desperate to be understood and validated in the conversation because I was just so needy. Part of my issue sometimes is just the realization of like what I'm feeling. Sometimes I don't know what I'm feeling until I lose my crap on someone. But once I know that I'm pretty, pretty good at self-care, but it's getting to the what that takes time. And so I was a Jen Shaw. I'm hoping in the future that I don't need to be a Jen Shaw in order to kind of realize what I'm feeling and take care of myself before it gets to that point. But there is my answer for the week. I was definitely a Jen Shaw. As I stated before, this week's theme is Mormon stories, and everyone in Utah, I think regardless of whether they're Mormon or not, has some sort of Mormon story. Maybe they've met a Mormon, for example, or maybe their experience or choices are affected by Utah politics, which is heavily influenced by the church. Apparently, it's harder to get drunk in Utah because they cap the alcohol content on things like beer. I, I'm obviously Mormon, so I know nothing about alcohol. Uh, but that's a thing. I'm not a Utah, but I am an Arizonan. And that's still part of what people call the jello belt, because Mormons eat more jello than basically anyone on the planet. It's also called the Mormon corridor or Morador for the Lord of the Rings fans. It stretches from Idaho to Utah down to Arizona and includes some part of Nevada as well. I was telling a friend the other day that I'm a native Arizonan. Um, my family goes back generations here. Uh, Mormons colonized Utah. I was telling a I was telling a friend the other day that I'm a native Arizonan, and my family goes back generations here. Mormons invaded Utah and stole the land from the indigenous there, and then we set our sights on Arizona. And I'm in Arizona because my family lived in Mexico for a time, so. The story goes, Utah wanted to become a state, so the church rescinded their policy on polygamy, and my great-great-great-grandfather was a polygamist. So we basically went into Mexico to escape the law. And both my maternal and paternal sides were down in Mexico. Um, my paternal grandfather, his early years were spent in Mexico, and my great-grandmother even crossed the border so he could be born in El Paso and be an American citizen by birth. Despite that story, I also come from a family of super Republicans who don't support that kind of behavior by anyone else. The most exciting story from my maternal grandparents in Mexico is that their horse was once stolen by Pancho Villa. So there's that. I, and I guess that's not the only story from my maternal grandparents. I'm actually a descendant from Parley P. Pratt, which was one of Joseph Smith's original apostles. And that's kind of our claim to fame. He was murdered in Arkansas by the angry ex-husband of his 12th wife. So I'm related to Mitt Romney through Parley P. Pratt's son, Helaman. And he comes through their daughter, Anna, and I come through Ira Woken. This is an example of what old Mormon families do. They find out how they're related or who they're related to. And most Mormon conversations, at least back in the day, begin with people trying to find out some sort of mutual connection. So they'll be like, oh, you went to Eastern Arizona College from 2000 to 2002? Do you know so-and-so? And it will go on and on and on until you find some mutual friend who is in the same ward back in 1995. Anyway, so Suffice it to say, people in Utah or Arizona or Idaho generally have some sort of Mormon story, even if they aren't Mormon. That includes Mary and Meredith, two of what we would call 
never mows. A true believing Mormon or an active Mormon, someone who attends church regularly, would call Mary and Meredith non-members. Mormonism also consists of other factions like ex-Mormons or ex-Mos. Some of these folks identify as post-Mormon or post-Mo, and you also have the prog-Mos or the progressive Mormons. Those are the ones that try and stay in the church and change it from within. Similar to prog-Mos, you also have the Mo-Fems or the Mormon feminists. That was my group or my home from around 2012 to 2016. The friends that I have now are all post-Mormons, and we met in the MoFem community. I know I, I just, I don't know why I went off on the different like factions within Mormonism, but whatever, now you all know. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Uh, Mormonism is just like endlessly fascinating to me, as is the housewives. So, oh, I just remembered, I was recently introduced to the Desnats or the Deseret Nationalists. And these folks are like the super right wing of the church. They're on Twitter and apparently make memes. So I I'm new to that faction. I'm excited to like research them more, but there you go. Okay. I could talk about Mormonism all day, but let's get back to housewives. So this episode aired five days after Kamala Harris was announced as vice president-elect. And I saw all of these little girls, I saw all of these little girls watching the TV screens and looking up, watching her acceptance speech, and I felt happy for them. All of these girls, all of these women who finally saw themselves represented in this particular way. I, and I felt happy that she won, obviously, because she was the person I voted for. So I watched Kamala achieve her goals the week prior, and it really meant nothing to like the little girl inside of me. And I think part of that is also, I knew that like if I were 15 years old and watching this, I would be judging her, thinking, yeah, she has all the success now, but it doesn't really matter because she should be a wife and a mother. Like no success will compensate for success in the home. So why are you even attempting to achieve success outside the home? Like once again, it goes back to this pointless idea. Um, I remember my friend had a baby around 2008, 2009, I believe. And she was going to go back to work after she had the kid. And I remember thinking in my head, super, super judgmentally, like, well, what's the point of even having a kid if you're just going to work? Like, what's the point? Like, you shouldn't be working how others were feeling and love them for it and be happy for them. But also inside, I'm just like dead. And then The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City premiered the following week. So Heather comes onto my screen and I don't know, I just feel like something clicked. Like I got... I got it. I got what it felt like to see someone who looked like you and felt like you and had a similar heart. And there Heather was in all her glory on Bravo TV of all places, the place that I've been watching shows for 14 years. And it sounds so stupid because it's Bravo, but like I felt represented for like the first time in my life. I, I sat there and I think the general feeling was just like, whoa, like maybe I'm worth something to the outside world as well. Like my worth isn't confined to just a Mormon community or even a family. Like people are watching this show and they're genuinely enjoying people. And Heather is this breakout star. And it's not that I want to be on Bravo and it's not like I want to do exactly what she does, but it's like, my experience might be worth something to the outside world. I don't know. It was just mind blowing. Like she sat there on television and she talked about all the things that she loved, but she wasn't supposed to love. And I was like, I get that. Like I tell people all the time that the greatest gift of leaving Mormonism um, was that it allowed me to love what I loved and love how I wanted to love. And it was like love was no longer being prescribed or performed. It was, it felt like I was actually free to feel love and love the things I loved without shame. 
I feel like a lot of the things I loved or a lot of the ideas I found interesting growing up, I felt shame over because it wasn't good to love those things. It wasn't good to love murder shows on TV. It wasn't good to love a more liberal slant on American history or whatever. It wasn't okay to love those things. And so I just felt shame for the way my heart gravitated towards certain ideas or certain people or certain concepts or whatever. Like, I, I guess I kind of liken it to the uh, Mary Oliver poem, Wild Geese. So it's something like, you do not have to walk on your knees for miles repenting. You only have to left, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And I think for many Mormon people, we aren't allowed to love what we love. So we just crawl on our knees through Deseret repenting, trying to be good. But but like Mary Oliver states at the very first line of the poem is, you don't have to be good. We just have to let ourselves love what we love. And that is goodness. That is worth offering to the world, essentially. That's what I got through Heather. And David White talks about this a little bit in his poem, The House of Belonging. So in that poem, he says, this is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to love. And it's not talking about trying to love what you're supposed to love, like learning to love the things that you're supposed to love. To me, he's talking about learning to let go of the shame associated with loving what you naturally love. And at the very end, he talks about how there is no house like the house of belonging. So that's like Heather to me. Um, I also really loved her comment about Mary and her grandfather. Um, I'm Mormon and we have a lot of latitude for weird stuff because that is super true. I talked a bit about Jen Shaw in part one, but let's talk about her Mormon story for a second. She was Mormon for many, many years, and it seems like she was able to disconnect with a bit less trauma than Whitney and Heather. And I kind of wonder if this is because Whitney and Heather's roots go all the way back to the church's founding so for those of us who are purebred pioneer stock, who are the first people in our families to leave, and for those of us who have few outside ties beyond Mormon, Mormonism, at least at the beginning, it can be really hard. Like Jen Shaw, her marriage didn't crumble. In fact, like her husband was a catalyst for leaving. So that kind of makes it a little bit less traumatic. But my marriage was fine until it basically imploded January the following year. We were together 11 years. I was married from age 20 to 32. And basically at the same time, this huge faith crisis hit. And in Mormon speak, that means you start questioning the church. You start um, going down the rabbit hole of doubt. Uh, for me, it was a huge existential and identity crisis because I no longer had a life purpose. I was taught be a mom, be a wife, but my kids were dead and my husband had left me. And my family even told me I was no longer welcome like at family events because I was basically a danger to their beliefs and a danger to my nieces and nephews. So all of that happened within probably a calendar year, maybe 11 months. Um, and basically for that year, I kept myself alive because that was pretty much the only thing I had the ability to do. I contemplated suicide a lot because really, once again, we're going back to the pointless thing. Like if I can't be a wife and a mother, then what is the point of me living? Like Mormonism just gave me so many answers that once I couldn't fulfill those answers anymore or do the things I was supposed to do, everything just became pointless. Dreams are pointless living is pointless. Like if I can't be a good Mormon, like what else is there? So all of that eventually, like that was like the best thing that ever happened to me, honestly. But, um, it was like super rough. I want to talk about Whitney now because she's the second most like me. Jury was really out on Whitney for me until like the second or third episode, the way she like interacted with her father and her choice to attend that church history trip as a teenager instead of like going to the beach with her friends or something like the whole church history thing. I'm like, oh, that was me as a teenager. And that kind of sealed the deal on my love for her. I was that teenager. Her cousin walked up to her and apologized for judging their marriage 10 years prior. And Whitney said that she was both thankful and resentful. I've had a similar experience to this. As I mentioned before, I had multiple miscarriages and the fourth was basically the thing that broke the camel's back. 
But when I tried to express my grief over all of this at times, my family would respond with things like, well, we're grieving too, to try and like make it into a competition or something like, I don't know. Other times they would just ignore it and it would be like this elephant in the room and no one would say anything. Or if they said something, it would be, you know, the nice platitudes of, oh, you know, you'll see your kids in the next life because they're in heaven. Or in Mormonism, we have this thing where not only will I just get to see my uh, miscarried babies, but also I'll be able to raise them. So it's not just that I'll see them, it's that I'll actually have the chance to be a mother in the next life. So that I got that a lot as well. So I processed all of that grief really in therapy and my family and I were estranged for years. However, a couple years later, my sister texted me on the day like infant and pregnancy loss awareness day, which is October 15th. And she, it was like, finally, after all these years, she was acknowledging like the absolutely devastating loss that had went through like four years prior, like from like, finally, finally she was acknowledging it. And she acknowledged that like, Whoa, Paula went through this and there's this huge day that everyone's posting about on social media. And it's like, she made the connection or something, but honestly it was a bit too late. Like I saw the progress that she made to get to this place and the personal growth that it took. But I also like couldn't ignore the growth that I've had. So at this point, I no longer needed the validation and I no longer needed someone to mourn with me. And honestly, I needed someone to like almost rejoice with me over their deaths because like the, the life that had been afforded me because of those deaths is a miracle. The life is a miracle. The, the miscarriages were a miracle to me. And I wasn't resentful in the sense that I was like bitter towards my sister. I just more recognized that her getting to that place was for her and it wasn't about me anymore. Um, and, and it made me realize that we were so far apart at that point that she didn't even like know what I needed anymore. Like she didn't even see my growth. Right. But she was reaching out and she was trying. While I no longer needed it, I was able to respond to her with like some sort of compassion about the work that it took to get to the place to recognize my pain, even if it was years later. But also it was years later and it was too late and I had moved on. So, okay. So have any of you seen the Brene Brown cartoon with the fox bear and the antelope? I'll link it in the show notes. And essentially what it is, is this fox is super sad and the fox descends into this hole of darkness and cloudiness. And there's this antelope and the antelope peers into the hole, peers into the opening, but he doesn't climb down into the hole with the fox. He just kind of shouts from the top to look at the bright side, look at the silver lining. Oh, you had a miscarriage. At least you can get pregnant. And it's just so judgmental in a way like, I know what'll help you. I know what's right. I know what will bring you comfort. It just comes from this place of arrogance and inability to really access their own grief and, and pain or work through their own grief and pain. But like there's this bear in the cartoon and the bear climbs down into the hole to be with the fox. And the bear says things like, I know what it's like down here. And in this situation with my sister, that is my cat. <laughs> in this situation with my sister, it was like she did the work. She climbed down into the hole. She finally stopped being the antelope and she was able to go deep, deep into this hole and actually say, wow, it's really, really difficult, isn't it? But I was no longer in that hole. I mean, it's great that Wendy's cousin recognized that she was wrong. And I love that her cousin apologized. But for me and maybe even Whitney, those people are speaking to a completely different person. They're speaking to us now, not the person who needed the non-judgment years ago. Like you can recognize the growth of both of you and say, oh, you've grown enough to apologize and I've grown out of needing your apology. But it's ultimately it's too late. Like the moment has passed and, and there's no there's healing and growth that comes despite the moment because you can't go back and fix it. You we can't cut time travel. Um, the moment to essentially like mourn with those who mourn, as we say in Mormonism, is past. And so there are these really like bittersweet elements to interactions like that years after leaving. Like there's gratitude and there's loss. 
And that's what comes up in interactions is just this, I, it's so complicated. And so the resentment and the gratitude that, or whatever Whitney was saying about this interaction, I'm like, oh, I get that. It's like so painful, but it's also like this relief or this recognition that something has shifted and that makes you profoundly grateful for, for where you are now. Okay, finally, let's talk about Meredith and Mary. And I'll keep this short because the podcast is already getting long. These are our two nevermos of the bunch, but they're embedded within the Mormon culture. And I want to talk about that. But one thing that Meredith said about Utah really struck me. Uh, Utah has this a certain underlying level of kindness, at least on the front, that you don't get in Chicago. So herein lies the rub for me. I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, all of these Mormons like preach kindness, right? As though it matters. And I'm not saying that kindness doesn't matter because it does. But honestly, I think there's this phrase, I think it's from Yogananda. He's like a, a meditation teacher that passed years and years and years ago. But I think that the quote is something like, use good to overcome evil and then transcend them both. So it's not that like goodness doesn't matter. It's not like kindness doesn't matter, but it's not really the end all be all, at least for me. I would rather have like vulnerability and a sense of honesty, even though that can be really difficult at times. And the other thing I want to say is I feel like I wore this mask of kindness so much as a Mormon, um, especially when it came to like accepting the service or accepting the help that people were giving me. And I also felt like I had to be overly enthusiastic all the time. So, oh, I'm so excited to see you. Oh, I'm so happy about that. Oh, I'm so grateful about this. It was like always attempting to state these things to almost create the emotion within myself because I was just masking all the time. So if anybody has ever watched, and this is like the most random recommendation you will ever receive from a podcast. If you have ever watched the show Provo's Most Eligible on YouTube, it's a totally cringy show. I'll link it to the show notes. I'll link not Provo's Most El Eligible to the show notes. I'll link Mr. Atheist, uh, Jimmy Sh Snows, and Zelf on the Shelf's um, commentary about it because that's more interesting to watch anyway. But essentially, all these season two bachelorettes, every time a con like a contestant shows up and gives them like the gift and like says their pickup line to be remembered by the bachelorette, the bachelorette's always like so excited, like fake excitement. It's something that uh, both uh, Jimmy Snow and the Zelf folks talk about. I, I think kindness can be authentic, but for some reason, I have this weird thing where I, I think things need to be like rooted in the body. So if kindness isn't something that like is coming from your toes that are connected to the ground, then it's not real. Um, it has to actually be an embodied kindness. And I feel like between my family and Mormonism, I was super disconnected from my own body and like the emotions that sprung from it. I went to an acupuncturist once and she was like doing something with my head. And she's like, your head is the heaviest head I've ever like felt or dealt with because it was just so bogged down with stuff because I was so in my head and not in my body. Right. And sometimes even now I really struggle with like actually feeling feelings in like my toes and stuff. Like I'll just feel my energy kind of trickling up into my head and it's just not in my lower half of my extremities at all. That's weird information that you probably didn't need to know, but whatever. Anyways, I was super disconnected from my body and I don't know that I would have even known that like my kindness was a lie at that point in my life. I wouldn't have even known that I wasn't actually so excited to see someone um, oh, this isn't making sense at all. But I, once again, my point being, the kindness is somewhat genuine. But part of me wonders, do they know whether it's genuine or not? Are they so disconnected from their own reality that they don't know if their kindness is real and they don't even think to question it? Because I didn't. And I didn't even know that I how much I was lying until even though we don't want to, sometimes you can drop those and it's totally okay. I suddenly realized how much I was lying to everybody. And it's not like I was this super like pathological liar or whatever, but just like the little lies and the social norms that we all keep up. Um, 
However, in this one instance, she basically, in my mind, just kind of stated what was real for her in that moment. She smelled hospital and she just spoke it out loud. And she mentions later in the second episode that it kind of took her back to this traumatic traumatic event. And when we're triggered into like a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode, our prefrontal cortex isn't really online. So we respond to the situation without really thinking things through. So Mary doesn't have a filter normally. And then there, there was a situation that kind of triggered her and then she really didn't have a filter. But in my mind, like saying you smell like hospital in that kind of situation is relatively benign and not actually like the worst thing she could have done or said if she was triggered into this fight or flight situation. I always tell people that like you haven't lived until you've shouted the F word in the middle of a Relief Society women's group meeting during a Sunday service um, and just like screaming the F word <laughs> and then just dissolving into tears because you're so frustrated by this woman. Um, like I, I could have just commented on like how the walls are covered in carpet and that probably would have offended people, but probably not as much as dropping the F-bomb. Um, and also Mormon churches do have carpet on the walls. Basically, you, like, you don't speak truth, whether it's the F-bomb or the carpet on the walls or the you smell like hospital. You just don't say what's actually real and what's actually in front of you. And that's essentially what's Mary's mistake, especially in the Utah culture. Obviously, Jen is like playing this out for the cameras and she's playing the role of a housewife. And it's possible that Mary was being a little bit insulting. Like she's probably not perfect um, in this situation or completely like innocent. But like, regardless, my point is like, you don't tell the truth in Mormonism. You just don't. Oh, I forgot about Lisa. So, okay. I have to admit, I'm a little bit judgmental about Lisa and I still don't know what I think about her. I'm still kind of processing her even after three to four episodes. My first impression that she gives off, like the vibe she gives off is that she's not a Mormon. She's a cool Mormon. And I don't know how I feel about that, especially since like the cool Mormons never really gave me the time of day. Um, I was never really part of the in crowd. And as desperately as I wanted to be righteous and good enough to be part of them, I really wasn't. My other issue with Lisa is this, and it's not really an issue with Lisa. It's obviously my own stuff coming up. The issue is this. I don't get the 2.0 thing, like the Mormon 2.0 thing. I just don't get, and I'm super judgmental about it. I, I just don't get it. So I grew up on a six acre plot of land surrounded by alfalfa fields and dairy farms. And my neighbors were essentially cows and extended family. The only people who lived on the six acres was my grandma my aunts and uncles, my cousins, and then my uh, nuclear family. And I went to public school, but I didn't really have friends that came home with me from school because we lived out in the boonies. And so no one really visited each other after school because it was too difficult to get to each other's houses. It's not like you're going to someone's, like you're playing with the neighborhood kids on a cul-de-sac. And, and really it was like everything from church was reinforced at home and everything at home. I heard the same things at church and I went to public school, but that was just school. And that was kind of where the worldly people were and the secular people. And so whenever I would hear things at school, a lot of it was, or something would happen at school, I would be filtering it through this lens of Mormonism and I would just be reinforcing the Mormon. So I think my issue with Lisa is this, I don't know how someone can call themselves Mormon and like hold the church so lightly. Like I'm not doubting the label that she gives herself. Like if she calls herself Mormon, she's a Mormon. But I, I personally, like I said, this isn't an issue with Lisa. This is my issue. I'm, I don't know how not to be completely enmeshed in Mormonism. <laughs> like even as an ex Mormon, I am creating a Mormon podcast and I don't know how one can be Mormon, but not be Mormon, you know, like, how do you not be 100% all in doing all the right things? Like how, I don't know how people don't get up obsessed essentially with, with it when they're in it. Um, so the fact that she can kind of hold it lightly and pick and choose off the buffet line, what she'll do and what she won't and what she believes and what she doesn't. That's just like not my Mormon experience. 
it's just, it's not my Mormon experience. And a lot of the people that come out of the church who are super traumatized or someone like Heather, for example, I mean, you're all in, you're trying, like, that's your thing. That's what you're trying to do with your whole entire life is just be a good Mormon. That's all you do with your entire life. And like part, so I took a step back and I thought, okay, maybe I'm just jealous because she's the cool girl. Maybe I'm just jealous that like she's breaking the rules and I didn't allow myself to break the rules when I was a Mormon. So maybe it's like jealousy that like she's getting away with something that I wouldn't let myself get away with. But like, even now as an ex-Mormon, it's not like I'm out there like drinking or smoking. Like I, I don't, I, I'm 40 and I still haven't tasted alcohol. I barely started drinking coffee like every once in a while, like a year ago. Like I still, like, I don't date, I don't plan on getting married again. And I'm honestly, I think I'm like asexual or like non-binary, but, um, so I haven't really like, I have no interest in a romantic relationship. So I don't know what that's called. A romantic, maybe two. I'm not quite sure what I am, but I'm weird. So like I haven't dated or kissed or like slept with anyone since I got divorced because it just, it's just, uh, who has time for that? Um, it just doesn't, I don't know. I feel like my marriage was like an aberration or something. Um, I don't know why I just shared all of that, but my point being, um, it's not like I'm like breaking all the Mormon rules now. So my thinking is kind of like, am I, maybe I'm not jealous of Lisa and the fact that she's breaking the rules. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to explain my thinking here. Like I said, I'm very torn on Lisa. I, I don't know how to express my feelings about her. Um, so she has this ability to not take Mormonism to the extreme. And she has this ability, I guess, to like not have the church be this abusive gaslighting force in her life. And maybe that's what I'm jealous of. But even then, I wouldn't go back and change my upbringing or how I interacted with the church at all. So maybe jealousy is the wrong word. If y'all listeners have any ideas on what this could be, let me know. Um, I'm still like watching and sorting my stuff with her. And I had this comment because I just, I just don't get it. Right. And so when Mary, like the Virgin Mary, you will give birth to the Christ child and you'll name him Jesus or whatever. And her response to this angel is like, how can this be like this incredulous, incredulous? I don't understand. Like, how can this miracle happen? I, this is just completely baffling to me. Her response is how can this be? And that is my response to Lisa. I don't get it. I'm like, how can this be? I don't understand Mormon 2.0. Um, okay. And by the way, I just wanted to let you all know, like, I'm hoping that the rest of these podcasts are a little bit less Mormon. And like, I want to do loyalty for the theme of the fourth episode. And that will obviously be a little bit less Mormon. Like, obviously, this is going to intersect with intersect with my Mormon story. But I won't be talking about the Mormonism in Salt Lake City so heavily going forward. Okay, so let's move on to part three. So part three is where we kind of answer a random question of the episode. And our question of the week comes from Jen Shaw. And she asks Stuart, as they're driving around Salt Lake City, what are we doing for the flavor of the cake? And Stuart responds, we're doing chocolate with raspberry and chocolate. Jen was like, well, who likes chocolate with raspberry? And Stuart here, you can kind of see him thinking and like, stumble a little bit, little bit. And there's like a pause and he responds and he's like, Meredith. Jen immediately responds. I don't feel comfortable with that answer. So first of all, I don't like raspberries and I like chocolate, but not chocolate cake. So the answer should have been carrot. The answer is always carrot cake. However, I was kind of like feeling Stuart here in this situation. I've been in situations where I've like lied. So I'm assuming let's just assume for the all intents and purposes of this podcast that Stuart lied, that it wasn't Meredith who wanted chocolate and raspberry. It was actually Stuart who wanted it. So Stuart essentially thought about it, felt uncomfortable that he was the one that decided that, and then just, but like spit out Meredith as, as the response. So I've been in these situations where I've made these white little lies. And so maybe I want chocolate with raspberry, but somehow it feels like too vulnerable to like state that outright and state my wants. So basically what I do in these situations is I like outsource that and I put that on someone 
else. And somehow it feels like more acceptable to me to meet someone else's needs or wants as opposed to meeting mine. And I feel like maybe this might be a human nature situation, but it connects with Mormonism as well because we haven't talked about Mormonism enough on this episode. In Mormonism, there's such a culture of helping others and a, and a culture of service. And a lot of rhetoric in Mormonism talks about how we need to put off our selfish desires, put off the natural man. So somehow I got the message that the only time anything was acceptable is if it was in the service of others or if it was to help others. I somehow got the message that like my desires were always bad, even when it came to like simple preferences like cake. So I had to like lie to get what I wanted or to get some of my basic needs met um, because that was the only way to get my needs met was to lie and, and kind of outsource the want to someone else. I do think that people can be like selfish and narcissistic and like selfishness is a thing, but I'm kind of coming around to the fact that it's okay to have simple desires like cake preferences. One of the things I worked on in therapy like years ago was just this idea of like figuring out what I liked and disliked and acting on it. So like if I liked this shade of blue and I wanted to put it on my walls, I would put it on my walls. Because I mean, just basic preferences. I didn't even know what kind of music I liked or um, what food I liked or what I how I like to wake up in the morning or... I don't know. I just, there, there was no room for preferences. Just like I was mentioning before, there wasn't a lot of room for goals or dreams because you were going to have to give it up anyway. So what's the point of ever liking a certain flavor of cake or even acknowledging to yourself that you like a certain flavor of cake? It, it's pointless, you know? So once again, pointless. So what I'm kind of getting at is like over the years, I've kind of learned that I can assert myself and I still tell these little white lies all the time because I'm, I mask all the time, but, um, essentially what I try to tell myself, what I try to tell myself is I can assert myself. I can tell others what I like or don't like. I can talk about my preferences. I can tell someone one, one, my friend and I were Marco Poloing like two days ago and she said something that like hurt me. And I told her that it hurt me. And that was like a huge thing for me to actually tell the person who hurt me that they hurt me. So, um, and there's no need to like use someone else as an excuse. Like I can like stand on my own and I'm valid enough to be recognized and like seen and honored. But in a way that's also super vulnerable because I'm not using human beings or God or the church or whatever as like some sort of like, um, like human shield. I, I see Meredith in this case, I see Stuart being asked this question, right? And he's feeling vulnerable and he doesn't know what to do. And he knows that the cake was his idea because he really likes chocolate and raspberry and he's pulling Meredith over and he's putting him, putting Meredith in front of him as some sort of like human shield so that he won't get hurt by Jen or his preferences won't be um, downvoted, I guess, by Jen. Is Jen a safe enough person where you can tell the truth to Jen? Um, and I, I honestly don't know if she is. So that got super uh, deep. <laughs> but like I said, the bottom line is this carrot cake is the one true answer. Okay. So this is the last part of the episode, uh, where we leave with a, a tarot card based on something from the episode. So I'm sitting here thinking about Heather and her comments about not being a good time girl and how she, if she could go back to college and be that she would. And I'm really kind of looking at the concept of regret and loss. I know that regret and shame is is pretty common among ex-Mormons. When you spend your whole life, at least your life up to that point, giving your lives over to something that just ultimately didn't work out, uh, there's so much grief involved. And, and regardless of why any of us left, I, I think what's common is that we lost 
certainty and a way of being and existing in the world that we can't get back. Uh, Mormonism is this massive identity marker and the loss of Mormonism. And, and in, in my case, having to realize that like, I essentially failed at being the person that I was raised to be like, that is so devastating even now. Um, and it's super, super traumatic to lose that. So this week's tarot card is going to respond to the idea of like devastating loss. Okay. So I pulled the seven of coins. Um, I use the fountain tarot deck when I do decide to do anything with tarot. And I'm just going to briefly read the little guidebook section of for the seven of coins. And the seven of coins is patient resolve. Coins, from what I understand and what I've been taught by uh, Sarah Hanks from Cottonwood Tarot is essentially coins are earthy and they're grounded and they're rooted, right? And so this seven of coins is the, the phrase associated with it is patient resolve. And it says with dirty hands and rolled up sleeves, the farmer assesses his creation. He calls the process that brought these seeds to maturity and the time, money, and effort it took to bring them into full growth. And then it goes on and it talks about how something in your heart tells you that your fruits have not fully ripened. Be patient, keep working. The meaning of the card is uh, stewardship, assessment, thoughtful planning, a commitment, rewarded, creativity, and security. Sorry, I didn't realize that I would get choked up about this. But leaving Mormonism is hard work. It, it is a loss, but it's part, it's a cultivation as well. And that like my faith crisis, and I've always felt that like my faith crisis and my divorce and my miscarriages and the fact that I didn't talk to my family for years. When I really think about it, I think, you know, there's nothing in my life that I did to like deserve that rescue and that saving, right? I was just trying to be a good Mormon. <laughs> and somehow God or the universe or all of creation like conspired me to rescue me from my own self-destruction. And so I think that what I kind of get from this card is that although I still feel like these pangs of, of devastation over having to leave, um, those are also seeds of, of something different and maybe something great. And maybe I can and should be patient in that process of like working through everything. Um, you know, maybe that, that podcast is, this podcast is a part of that. I think like I'm thinking about Mary Oliver's poem, like wild geese right? And how at the very end, she says, like, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world is offering itself to, to my imagination, like mine, right? And it calls to me, like wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over again. This creation is calling to me, announcing my place in, in the family of things. And so I guess part of this cultivation, part of this patience is just being patient, realizing that there's still work to be done, and that maybe at the end of it, there'll be some sort of um, feeling or resolve that like, I too have a place in this world, even if that place wasn't within the Mormon faith. So that's kind of what I'm thinking with regard to the, the seven of coins and the concept of devastating loss. Thank you all for listening. I guess you can get this podcast wherever podcasts are. Um, like rate on iTunes. Is that what people say at the end of these things? Um, I'll close it here. And uh, over the weekend, I plan on working on an episode on epi uh, an episode for episode two. Um, and that's really going to cover the topic of like passive aggression, uh, especially within Mormonism and especially among Mormon women. So I hope that you will join me then.